So when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying that I have completed the work the Father has given me, that the work of redemption is, finds its fullness in me. I'm the picture of it. I am the perfect lamb, and our debt has been paid. It is finished. These are Christ's final words on the cross as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. Throughout the four Gospels, we hear the phrase, it is written quite a bit. This phrase is meant to direct our hearts back to the Old Testament, to see that what was written then was being fulfilled in Christ. God's work of salvation that our Lord completed on the cross was not a happenstance, but an event that was orchestrated from the beginning. In our lesson for this week, Father Ward shares a couple of the Old Testament passages that point to Christ's death and helps us see Jesus as the promised Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you have enjoyed what you're hearing from this podcast, Please help us out by leaving a five-star rating and review. Your positive feedback will help us reach more people with this podcast. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. We read in verse 16, or 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. Now that Golgotha in Hebrew, it's actually Aramaic. I don't know, the New American Standard says Hebrew, but it was Aramaic, which is, I believe, a uh, language that descends from Hebrew. But it means literally cranium. It means the skull. And archaeologists and scholars have tried to figure out what where that location is, and there are two popular locations. The more traditional one that goes back from, um, oh, goes back uh, to, oh, Helena, uh, Helena, I think, uh, Constantine's mother. She was looking for the uh, holy sites uh, and supposedly found the beams of the crosses. But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is one traditional place, and then Charles Gordon, an English general in 1883, came across a garden tomb that looked like uh, a skull. And some of you who have been to uh, Jerusalem have seen it. Well, here's uh, just another rendition. We, sh- we showed this last week just to get you a feeling for the old city of Jerusalem. There's the temple. And, you know, it's not a big city. Uh, over on this distance would be the Roman garrison, I believe, either here or over, over here. Actually, no, it might be right here because they could look over into the temple. So I think that was where the Roman garrison would be. Anyway, the Jesus we know from Hebrews and, and just from early church history that he was, and, and it would make sense he, uh, theologically too with the Old Testament, he was crucified outside the city walls. There's another picture of looking at the temple from the Mount of Olives. Mission. Okay, so if you go to Jerusalem outside the city, it's the old city, you'll come to Gordon's, it's called Gordon's tomb, because you see this? That looks like a skull. So he thought that this could be the very place 
why they called it that. And so the crosses would be up here somewhere. I'll give you another picture a little farther away. It's even, oh, that's a close-up. I'm sorry, I should have done the reverse. But um, So you can see. Now, the only problem with this, it's possible, people like this place because it's more peaceful than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. How many of you have been in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? Raise your hand. Okay, so a few of you. It's, it's, it's like crowded. You're like waiting in line to go in. It's just too much hustle and bustle. You're like, are you kidding me? But yet, there's a good chance that it's on top of the area uh, that Jesus was crucified. But getting back to the problem with this one is that this assumes that the topography was like this 2,000 years ago because Gordon found this in 1883 or so. So that, that's only been around for, I mean, that we've known for maybe 150 years. So there's no guarantee that was that way 2,000 years ago. Also, scholars say that, I haven't come across yet, I'm sure there's different theories, but there's no real explanation for what that meant back then. Because it wouldn't mean that skulls were on the ground, because that would be uh, sacrilegious for the Jews. You know, did it mean that the topography looked like a skull? Uh, maybe. In any event, those are the two main locations. The one is very peaceful. The other is very, uh, there's the church, uh, freed by the crusaders. Uh, it's run, uh, there's the inside. Now there is where you go in and you can touch it. I touched it. I think it was like marble or some sort of, what is it? Some sort of stone that you go in and touch the uh, place. It's a beautiful church inside. There's another picture of the, altar around it. You can see the woman going into that area. Uh, so the rebuilt church site was taken from the Fatimids, as the Muslims, by the Knights of the First Crusade on July 15, 1099. The crusader chief, Godfrey of Bouillon, uh, who became the first king of Jerusalem, declared himself Advocata Sancti Sepulchre, um, defender of the Holy Sepulchre. The three primary custodians of the church first appointed when crusaders held Jerusalem are the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Apostolic, and the Roman Catholic churches. In the 19th century, the Coptic Orthodox, the Ethiopian Orthodox, and the Syrian Orthodox acquired lesser responsibilities, which include shrines and other structures within and around the building. An agreement regulates times and places of worship for each church. And if I'm not mistaken, historically there have been fights between these, these Christian groups, right? I mean, all out... You know, because it's like, and, and look, this is just as an aside, but there's something wrong with that picture. Let's uh, continue on in 19 then. Verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Notice how John doesn't spend a lot of time describing the criminals or what's going on with the criminals. That is not his focus in his gospel. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Normally when someone was crucified, oh, and by the way, I didn't even talk about crucifixion, but I think everybody knows it's a terrible way to go. You know, you're nailed through your feet. You're nailed uh, through either the middle of the hand or the uh, wrists, either one they've done. You're tied with a rope often to the beam. There's a peg so you can kind of sit on it, but it's designed so you're forward like this and your lungs fill up with fluid slowly but surely. You're stripped naked, so you're exposed to the taunts of the crowd. It's total humiliation. You're exposed to the heat of the day, and at night it would get down, especially at that time of the year in the spring, to about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. In addition, 
the we you know the movies like to make it you know real high you know Jesus is way up high but actually uh, Jesus would only be about three to four feet above uh, the ground so you know you could look right at him so that was kind of but no but oh and so the punishment or the uh, not the punishment but the offense uh, would often be put on a placard for everybody to know why you're being crucified and so what Pilate did as a final act of revenge and insult to the Jews, is he put, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, obviously, we know that the Jews didn't like this, the leadership, because look at what they said. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew or Aramaic. That was the local language. Latin, that was the language of the officials. And Greek was the common language of commerce. So it would kind of be like if you're in... Um, Oh, an African nation where they have their native tribal language, then they have English as the common language and maybe uh, French even as, as the uh, official if, you, if it was French rule, that type of thing. And, and so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. To which Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. In other words, beat it. This is, this is just the way it is. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier. Usually the execution squad would consist of four legionnaires and one centurion. Now, we don't know if there were more soldiers that were brought in because of the significance of Jesus. Because chances are there were probably a lot of people around. So there could have been very well more soldiers at least uh, going the way, you know, as he took the uh, beam uh, over his shoulder. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one place. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now that's perfectly normal because the soldiers that executed the, uh, the criminals and the people who were accused would get to keep the clothing. And because Jesus' undergarment was one piece, they wouldn't want to rip it up. So they would roll the dice. They gambled like most soldiers would. And they gambled. And what but was fascinating is this is a fulfillment of prophecy. I want everybody to keep your finger here and turn to Psalm 69. Now, what is significant about this is Psalm 69 was written centuries before Jesus was crucified. Let me see here. I want to make sure I have the right... I don't want to read the whole psalm. Uh, in the notes, I have a, more, a little more detail in terms of some of the things that we've uh, talked about. Actually, Psalm 22. Psalm 69 would be uh, for his thirst. Let me see if I can find that now. Yeah, all right. 21. Verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So that was a fulfillment a prophecy when they put the uh, vinegar wine that the soldiers would drink, cheap wine, to his lips. And, uh, and you can read this, but you, Psalm 22 is even more pronounced in terms of... And it was the psalm that Jesus prayed from the cross. That's on page 562, Psalm 22. Notice what Jesus, what Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then let's go to... Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. That's exactly what Jesus went through. All who see me snare at me. They separate with a lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. You remember in the other gospel accounts, that's where people were saying, hey, 
He, he saved others. Why can't He save Himself? Uh, verse 8, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him... Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 9, Yet you are He who brought Me forth from the womb. You made Me trust when upon My mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been My God from My mother's womb. Be not far from Me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Now, how can someone... How can God be their God from their mother's womb? Did you guys come to Christ when you were in your mother's womb? No. This can only be said of Jesus. Right? From my mother's womb. Father, my God. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Okay, now that's crucifixion. And crucifixion at that time, while the Persians used it, I'm trying to think if so, there was, might have been another people before the Persians. I don't know if the Assyrians used it, but it would not have been common in Israel. So where does that come from? I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So there you have it. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. So there's the prayer. Since we're running out of time, I want you to also look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is another uh, profound prophecy. Page 737. We're all familiar with these, but it's good for us to see them again. Verse 4. Well, the whole thing is just unbelievable. Uh, verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Uh, verse 4, Surely I grieve so He Himself bore. Verse 5, But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Scourging. Verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And anyhow, it continues. But that's just unbelievable. You can see it being fulfilled. So let's uh, go back to John 19. If we don't finish uh, this, we'll just pick up next week because 20, the resurrection chapter, is a little bit shorter. Uh, this chapter, 19, is one of the longest chapters. I think it's the second or third longest in John's Gospel. Anyway. Uh, let's see, where are we? Verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene supported Jesus financially. These were some of the four most loyal women of Jesus' ministry. And while Jesus did deliver demons out of Mary Magdalene, she shouldn't be confused with an adulterous woman, woman in Luke 7, woman of ill repute, or a prostitute. That's just extra stuff. Mary Magdalene was did have demonic spirits, but she was set free from the Lord and then she actually financially helped the Lord uh, in His ministry. Verse 26, When Jesus then saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. Then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, He's dying on the cross and yet He's still showing compassion for His mom. And he's basically directing John the Apostle, the writer of the Gospel, to take care of his mother because Jesus' brothers and sisters are probably nowhere to be found. 
Because remember, they weren't really believing in Him. They didn't come to follow Him until after the resurrection. Uh, Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, He said, I am thirsty. Why is that significant? It's a fulfillment of prophecy, but it also shows of what His body's going through. He's going through extreme dehydration from the blood loss from the scourging, from the, all the strenuous and the stress from the mocking and doing, having to put, you know, and then the, the being nailed to the cross, and then the sun, the heat of the sun. Just, it's just unbelievable. So, and it shows he's, a, he's human. I'm thirsty. He's dying of thirst. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hypsop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want to close with that wonderful word picture. Tetelestai. That's what it literally is. It is finished. If you remember, if you were here on Sunday and Saturday, we talked about departure, how Paul says the time of my departure is at hand, and how that's a wonderful word picture. The departure had four different meanings. All of you probably know it by now. Tetelestai has four wonderful meanings. It was used in four contexts. It was used after a servant had completed his or her work. It was used after the priest would inspect a lamb and make sure it is free of defects. It is finished. not, But in the sense that it is right. It was used after an artist painted a picture, completed the picture, would say, it is finished. And it was used by merchants when a debt had been paid. When Jesus said, it is finished, He was saying that the work the Father had given Him has been completed. It's all done. There's no more to do. And the wonderful picture of God's work of redemption is finds its fullness and beauty in Jesus. He is the perfect Passover lamb. A Passover lamb could not have its have any broken bones. Jesus did not have any bones broken. It was the custom of the soldiers. We'll, we would have read further to break the bones. They didn't have to. He was already dead. He was the perfect Passover lamb. Animal sacrifice, the Passover lamb would cover our sin but it could not take away our sin. But in John chapter 1, John the Baptist declares when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when Jesus said, it is finished, He was saying that I have completed the work the Father has given Me. That the work of redemption finds its fullness in Me. I'm the picture of it. I am the perfect Lamb. And our debt has been paid in full. It is finished. There was a uh, evangelist, I forgot his name, who said to one of his followers, his followers said, well, what, what must I do to be saved? Or someone who was here. And he says, you can't do anything. What? I can't do anything to be saved? Nope, there's nothing you can do. And the young man was like heartbroken. And then the preacher said, it's already been done. It's already been done. There's nothing more you can, there's nothing you can do. It's already been done. All you have to do is believe. I have to do is trust in what God has done in Christ. That, my brothers and sisters, is the Gospel. Alright, well thanks for coming out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You again for a fruitful study. We thank You for the wisdom that we glean from Your Word.
by not just its witness, but also by your Holy Spirit. Help us to uh, be continued students of the Word and help us not only to be merely hearers and understanders of your Word, but uh, doers, that we would uh, practice what we know to be true as we grow closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. To learn more about our church, please visit stbartston.org. Again, that's stbartston.org. You can also connect with St. Bartholomew's on Facebook and Instagram through the handle at St. Bart's Anglican Church. And you can connect with this podcast on Facebook through at Transforming Lives Together Cast. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God bless.